Deuteronomy 18 in your Bibles this morning. The title of the message is, The Prophet is Born in Bethlehem. I trust and hope that as we walk through the message today, the point, the object of my message will become clear. The direction that I would desire to go with this message um, will become clear. But let me just give you a little bit of a precursor, a, a sneak preview as to really what I'd like you to draw from the message this morning. As my children grow up, we were even talking about it for a few moments before the service this morning, I know I'm going to come across an instance where my children are going to become a little bit less than grateful for all that they've been given. You know, there are circumstances in our lives that cause us to become grateful for what we have. But there's always reason to complain. And sometimes, we have something and we take it for granted. And we never really know what we have until we've lost it. But if you're a born-again believer in this room today, you're never going to lose Christ. You are in Christ, and you will always be in Christ if you have accepted Him as your Savior. We're going to speak on the Gospel this morning, but to those of you who are believers, what I'd like this message to do for you is to remind you of what you have in Christ. And to remind you that not everybody always had what you have today. So you're in Deuteronomy 18. We're going to be there in a little bit. But we are going to begin in Exodus chapter 20. Perhaps put something in Deuteronomy 18 because we will be back there. But um, please turn with me to Exodus chapter 20 as we begin. The prophet is born in Bethlehem. When Jesus Christ was born, He was born to be prophet, priest, and king. And in Exodus chapter 20, we see God enter into a covenant called the Mosaic Covenant, that's what we call it today, with the nation of Israel. And in verses 1-17, through we see this covenant established. God begins by giving what we call today the Ten Commandments. Very well-known. Many of you could probably quote those Ten Commandments by heart. We're familiar with the Ten Commandments. And these were the commandments that were supposed to be, they were written on a table, and they were to go in the Ark of the Covenant, and they were to be a, a, a sure sign of the covenant that God had made between Himself and Israel, whereby if they kept these commandments, God would bless them. And if they did not keep God's commandments, these Ten Commandments in particular, God would curse them. It was a two-way covenant where each side had a responsibility. And so God tells them, Thou shalt have no other gods before me. Thou shalt not make unto thee any graven image. Thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain. Verse 7. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Verse 8. Verse 12. Honor thy father and thy mother. Verse 13, thou shalt not kill. Verse 14, thou shalt not commit adultery. Verse 15, thou shalt not steal. Verse 16, thou shalt not bear false witness against thy neighbor. Verse 17, thou shalt not covet. And then in verse 18, the Scriptures tell us, and all the people saw thunderings and lightnings 
and the noise of the trumpet and the mountain smoking. And when the people saw it, they removed and stood afar off. And they said unto Moses, Speak thou with us and we will hear. But let not God speak with us lest we die. And Moses said unto the people, Fear not. For God has come to prove you. And that his fear may be before your faces that ye sin not. And the people stood afar off and Moses drew near unto the thick darkness where God was. God gives these ten commandments and in Exodus chapter 20 he gives them audibly. Audible to the people these ten commandments. And the scriptures tell us that when the people heard the voice like a trumpet and saw the thunderings and the lightnings that were surrounding the glory of God, they ran away. They moved themselves afar off from the presence of God and they said this in verse 19, Speak thou with us and we will hear, but let not God speak with us lest we die. The holiness and the righteousness and the power of God was so great that they said, Moses, never again. Please go tell God to never again speak with us face to face. You speak with God and then you tell us what He said. But never again let us speak with God face to face. What an interesting set of circumstances that God's presence was so fearful, that God was such a holy God that when the people saw Him and heard Him in person, He was so fearful and His holiness was so apparent and they felt so inadequate in the presence of Almighty God that they could do nothing but run and flee. And we see a similar circumstance when Isaiah sees the glory of God in Isaiah chapter 6. He says, woe is me. I am undone. I am a man of unclean lips. When Ezekiel saw the glory of God in Ezekiel chapter 1 and in Ezekiel chapter 10, he fell upon his face and it literally took the Spirit of God to empower him to get him back on his feet. He fell like a dead man. This is the experience that we see throughout Scripture when a man comes face to face with the glory of God. And so they say, Moses, you speak with God, but never again let us speak with God. We move forward to Exodus chapter 33. Please turn with me to Exodus 33. Moses has been up on the mount receiving all of the commands of God. While he is up on Mount Sinai speaking with the Lord, he is up there for 40 days and 40 nights and the people say, I don't know what happened to Moses. Aaron, you don't know what happened to Moses. He must be dead. After all, he's... Look at the thunderings. Look at the lightnings. We felt like we almost died when the Lord spoke to us. He must be dead. Make us gods. Make us gods that can go before us. Gods that we can worship. And so Aaron makes them a golden calf and they begin to worship that calf. And he says, These be thy gods, O Israel, which brought thee out of Egypt. Moses has been up on the mount with the Lord receiving the law. And as he has done so, God says, Get thee down off of this mountain, Moses, for the people have corrupted themselves. Moses goes down. Joshua is with him. And Joshua says, I hear the sound of war in the camp. 
Moses says, that's not war. That's the sound of singing. And they go down and they see the people prostituting themselves before this idol. The thundering of God on the mountain before them. And while the thundering of the holiness of God is is before them on the mountain, they are down on the plains worshiping a false god. Moses in his wrath takes those Ten Commandments on the tablet. He breaks them. He melts down that idol. He, he causes them to drink the water from the melting of this idol. The tribe of Levi gets up and they slay the people for their sin. And then Moses goes back up onto the mount. And that's what we see in Exodus chapter 33. Look with me beginning in verse 1. And the Lord said unto Moses, Depart and go up hence, thou and the people which thou hast brought up out of the land of Egypt, unto the land which I swear unto Abraham, to Isaac and to Jacob, saying, Unto thee will I give it. Unto thy seed will I give it. Excuse me. And I will send an angel before thee, and I will drive out the Canaanite and the Amorite and the Hittite and the Perizzite and the Hivite and the Jebusite unto a land flowing with milk and honey, for I will not go up in the midst of thee. For thou art a stiff-necked people, lest I consume thee. God says, you go, you take these people, you go to the land, I'll even prepare the way for you, but my presence will no longer be among you. The people were grieved. It says in verse 4, And when the people heard these evil tidings, they mourned. And no man did put on him his ornaments. For the Lord had said unto Moses, Say unto the children of Israel, Ye are a stiff-necked people. I will come up into the midst of thee in a moment and consume thee. Therefore now put off thine ornaments from thee that I may know what to do with thee. What am I going to do with these people, God says? Moses is in the tabernacle. In verse 8. He says that they pitched the tabernacle in verse 7. Moses goes into the tabernacle in verse 8. And when he comes out, the people rise up. They stand every man at the tent door and they look to see what's going on. Moses enters in. Verse 9, the cloudy pillar descends, stands at the door of the tabernacle, and it says, The Lord talked with Moses, spake unto him face to face, as a man speaketh to his friend. And in verses 12 through 23, Moses makes some requests of God. Moses says in verse 12, See, thou sayest unto me, Bring up this people, and thou hast not let me know whom thou wilt send with me. Yet thou hast said, I know thee by name, and thou hast found grace in my sight. Now therefore, if I pray, I pray thee, if I have found grace in thy sight, show me now thy way, that I may know thee, that I may find grace in thy sight, and consider that this nation is thy people. And he said, My presence shall go with thee, and I will give thee rest. Moses says in verse 15, If thy presence go not with me, carry us not up hence. God says, I will not take these, I will not go up with these people. Moses pitches the tabernacle, goes into the tabernacle. The glory of God surrounds him. God speaks with him as he would speak with his friends. And Moses says, God, if your presence will not go up with me, then don't even take me up. Don't even take us to the promised land if you will not go with us. There's a longing in Moses' heart 
that God's people would have the blessing of God and the presence of God, for he knows that if they do not have the presence of God, then they have nothing. They have nothing. Verse 17, the Lord says unto Moses, I will do this thing also that thou hast spoken, for thou hast found grace in my sight, and I know thee by name. And notice what Moses says in verse 18. I beseech thee, show me thy glory. And he said, I will make all my goodness to pass before thee, and I will proclaim the name of the Lord before thee, and will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. And he said, Thou canst not see my face, for there shall no man see me and live. The Lord said, Behold, there is a place by me, and thou shalt stand upon a rock, and it shall come to pass, while my glory passeth by, that I will put thee in the cliff of the rock, and will cover thee with my hand while I pass by, and I will take away my hand, and thou shalt see my back parts, but my face shall not be seen. Moses says, God, you have promised to go with us. Please go with us. God says, I'll go with you because you found grace in my sight. And then he says, God, may I make another petition? Will you show me your glory? God says, you cannot see my face. No man can see my face and live, but I will pass by you and I will cover you as I pass by. And once I've passed by, I will remove that covering and you will see the the rear of my glory. You will see the back part of my glory. You will see but a taste of my glory. See, as we look in Exodus chapter 20 and as we look in Exodus chapter 33, we see two sides of the same coin. We see a problem. God manifested Himself to Israel, His glory in the thunderings and the lightnings and the voice as the sound of a trumpet. And the people were so afraid of dying that they could not come to Him. There was a barrier between God and man. And then Moses, one who greatly desired to see God's glory, one who spoke to God face to face as a man speaks to his friend, Beg God, would you please show me your glory? And God says, there's a barrier between me and you. I can show you a piece of it, but I can't show you everything. And so there's a problem. There's a barrier between God and man. But let's fast forward a little bit more. Let's fast forward to this morning. You got up. You got dressed, you came to church, you're sitting in these seats and you're listening to me preach. And perhaps throughout this week you opened your Bible and you communed with God. Perhaps throughout this week you spent time in prayer. You talked with God. As the song says that we sometimes sing, and He walks with me, and He talks with me, and He tells me I am His own. We talk directly with God. We receive commandments from God. What changed? What changed between Israel standing before the glory of God and Moses asking God to show him his glory and the barrier between the people and God whereby there was an inaccessibility there. What changed between that in Exodus 20 and Exodus 33 and today when you call God your Father, where God calls you His Son, 
where you commune directly with God, you pray to God, God leads you through His Holy Spirit, what changed? We all know what changed. A young child was born in Bethlehem some 2,000 years ago named Jesus. And as He was born, the Scriptures tell us, we sang already this morning, that He would be called Emmanuel. O come, O come, Emmanuel. That word meaning God with us. And when Jesus came, the book of John tells us that He was the manifest glory of God. All of God's glory in a man. And He showed us His glory. And we saw the glory of God, John says, face to face. And Jesus Christ died on a cross, bore our penalty, so that no one would ever have to say, hide me from the face of God again. Because now we have an intercessor between us and God. Someone like Moses, who would stand between us and God, and give us God's commandments, and manifest God's goodness, and show us God's glory, so that we could have a personal relationship with God. And that brings us back to Deuteronomy chapter 18. Please turn with me back to Deuteronomy 18. Within the context of Deuteronomy 18, it has been several years since the events of Exodus 20, Exodus 33. In fact, those people that asked Moses to never again let God speak with them are dead. Only a few of them are still alive at this point. Moses is still alive. Joshua is still alive. And Caleb is still alive. And Moses is about to die. God will not allow Moses to go into the promised land because Moses disobeyed God's command and disobeyed it before the people, publicly disobeyed God's command. And so the people refused to go into the land. God said they will not go into the land. Only Joshua and Caleb will enter the land. And now Moses is speaking to that second generation. The children of those who came out out of Egypt. And in Deuteronomy chapter 18, God is reminding God's people through Moses of their responsibility concerning the Levites in the land and the priesthood. These men were to have no inheritance, but rather they were provided for the rest of the nation to serve them spiritually. Moses tells the people again of the grave necessity of personal separation in verses 9 through 14 that they are to completely separate themselves from everyone in the land of Canaan. And then in verses 15 through 19, Moses makes a promise. Let's read those verses together. Beginning in Deuteronomy 18, verse 15. God says, The Lord thy God will raise up unto thee a prophet from the midst of thee, of thy brethren like unto me, unto him ye shall hearken according to all that thou desirest of the Lord thy God in Horeb in the day of the assembly, saying, Let me not hear again the voice of the Lord my God, neither let me see this great fire any more, that I die not. 
And the Lord said unto me, They have well spoken that which they have spoken. I will raise them up a prophet from among their brethren like unto thee, and will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak unto them all that I shall command him. And it shall come to pass that whosoever will not hearken unto my words which he shall speak in my name, I will require it of him. Here some 40 years later, God tells Moses, you're going to die. But I am going to raise up a prophet. And that prophet will be similar to you. He will tell God's people everything that's in my heart. He will stand between me and the people. Because remember 40 years ago when the people said, never again let God speak to us face to face? Well, they spoke well when they said that. That was a good thing for them to ask. Because there is no way that a sinful human could ever speak to God face to face. But, I'm going to send them a prophet who will stand in the gap. Who will intercede between them and me. Who will do for them what they could not do for themselves. Who will reconcile me to my people. I'm going to send a prophet He says, a seemingly irreconcilable wall stood between God and man. Distance didn't work. A simple law didn't work. They needed an intercessor. They needed someone to tear down that wall. And so God promised that He'd send him. They have well spoken that which they have spoken. I will raise them up a prophet like unto thee. I will put my words in his mouth. And notice the last bit in verse 19. According to verse 19, not only would this man tear down that irreconcilable wall between God and man, not only would this man stand between God and the people, not only would this man speak the words of God, but this man would become the standard by which every man's relationship with God was judged. So that, if you obeyed the prophet, you were obeying the Word of God. If you disobeyed the prophet, God would hold you accountable for disobeying Him. And so this prophet would become the de facto standard by which we had a relationship with God. And the words of this prophet. As we walk through the Old Testament, we see many prophets, many kings speak of the one who should come. In 2 Samuel 7, verses 12 through 14, Nathan tells David that this prophet would come, and he says that he'll also be a king. In Psalm chapter 110, or Psalm 110, verse 4, David declares that this prophet. And this king would also be a priest after the order of Melchizedek. Isaiah spoke of him. Micah spoke of him. Daniel spoke of him. Malachi spoke of him. Zechariah spoke of him. Jeremiah spoke of him. Ezekiel spoke of him. Many others even spoke of the prophet that shall come. And 
through this thousand years of prophecy, they said, He's coming. He's coming. He's coming. The One who would stand before us in God. The One who would speak the words of God. The One who would tell us everything that is in God's heart. The One who would manifest God's glory. The One who would stand between the people and a holy God. And they waited. And they prayed. And they longed. And they waited. And they called this prophet, priest, king, Messiah. Enter the New Testament. In Matthew chapter 1. There was a child to be born. And his name was called Jesus. Jesus, meaning Jehovah is salvation. And he was to be called Emmanuel. God with us. He was announced by the angel Gabriel to be the fulfillment of all the promises. All the promises back to Adam and Eve, really. And the seed that should come and would crush the head of the serpent. God said in Deuteronomy 18 that this prophet who would come would be the one who would reconcile God to man. God said in Deuteronomy 18 that this prophet who would come would be the man who would intercede between the holiness of God and man's need for a personal relationship with God. The prophet would be the one who would speak the words of God to mankind. The prophet would be the one who would manifest the glory of God so that all could see it. The prophet would be the one who would be the friend of sinners so that every man might speak with God face to face as a man speaks with his friend. And this prophet was named Jesus, born some 2,000 years ago in Bethlehem, announced to be the Messiah. And on that day, everything changed. The day Christ came, everything changed. Now, it would not be until 33 years later that He would bear the sins of the world. 33 years later, man would no longer fail to find a mediator between himself and God. 33 years later, man would no longer sit in darkness, but he would see that marvelous light No longer would the holiness and wrath of God make God inaccessible to man. Because the holiness and the wrath of God would be appeased forever. And so we saw a promise made in Deuteronomy 18. A promise that was necessary because of the events of Exodus chapter 20 and Exodus chapter 33. What does all that history mean to you and I? This Wednesday, we are going to observe a memorial of our Savior's birth. He wasn't actually born at this time of year. We know that. Many parts of the traditional Christmas story are a little bit skewed. We know that. Society has turned this time of year into nothing but consumerism. We know that. But let's set all of that aside. And let's think about what we can do in this time, which is to reflect upon our Savior's birth. And let's consider this morning as we apply all that we've understood what His birth means to us. And as we do so, what we are going to understand is the Gospel. See, in Exodus chapter 20, the people knew that they needed something. The people wanted a relationship with God. But this holy, righteous God was inaccessible to them. 
They could not have a relationship with Him. They thought they were going to die when they tried. Moses so desperately desired to have a relationship with God that he said, God, show me Thy glory. And God said, I simply can't. If I showed you all my glory, you would die. I'll have to hide it from you as I pass by. Throughout history, mankind has had a need. Mankind has needed a relationship with God. Mankind has needed reconciliation to God. Mankind has needed someone to stand between him and God because we have a need that we cannot meet. And that's our first point this morning. You need a Savior. You need a Savior. Mankind has a problem. And I'm going to refer to this problem as an illness this morning. Our problem is sin. And sin is a sickness. Like all illnesses, the root of the problem is internal and invisible. But its symptoms are quite evident. And it's these symptoms that tell us we have a problem. When you get the flu, you don't see the flu. We don't see all the microbes floating around, all the little flu viruses. We don't see them on the light switches. We don't see them on the doorknobs. If we did, we'd probably never leave our houses. But they're there, aren't they? We don't see what is causing us to be sick, but when we get the flu, we know that we have the flu. There are symptoms of the illness that are manifest in our lives. Maybe we get a runny nose. Maybe we have a pounding headache. Maybe we can't keep food down. Maybe we have no energy, the aches, the chills, the pains. You've been there, lying in bed, not able to get up. Not, not feeling like doing anything, having to go to the bathroom, but not wanting to get up to go to the bathroom because you're so tired. You're winded by the time you get there. You need to sit down and rest for a few minutes. We've all been there. Now, we can take a Tylenol and mask some of those symptoms. The fever might go away. We might even get a little bit of energy back. But masking the symptoms is not solving the problem, is it? We can dull our body to the symptoms of our problem, but when the pill wears off, the fever is going to come back. When the pill wears off, the symptoms are going to come back. It's not enough for us simply to dull the symptoms of the problem. We need a cure. I said our illness is sin. What is sin? If we were to to define sin this morning, we would define it this way. Anything that we say, anything that we do, or anything that we think that is contrary to the person, the will, or the Word of God. So anything that we might do, or think, or even intend, that offends God's holy standard. That offends God's perfection. That falls short of God's glory. And sin is an illness. Sin is not simply what we do. We do sin, but we are sinful. Sin is what we are. The things we do, the sins we commit, are simply symptoms of an illness. When I lie, or when I cheat, or when I steal, or when I covet, or when I disobey my parents, or when I gossip, or when I slander, or when I have hatred in my heart towards someone, I am exhibiting symptoms of my illness. The illness is deeper than the symptoms. 
If I get rid of some of the symptoms, that doesn't mean I've gotten rid of my illness. I can't just say one day, okay, you know what? I'm not going to lie anymore. And therefore, I'm not a sinner anymore. I'm not going to disobey my parents ever again. And so I will not be a sinner anymore. It doesn't work that way. That's like saying, I'm going to take a pill for my fever and I'm not going to be sick anymore. It doesn't work that way. The illness is deeper. The illness is a sin problem that we cannot solve. Being a good person won't solve our sin problem. Going to church won't solve our sin problem. What's going to solve our sin problem? How can we solve the sin problem? See, we've got a problem. And it's a helpless situation in and of ourselves because we are sinners. Consider with me Romans chapter 6, verse 23. The Bible teaches us that sin has consequences. Because you are a sinner, because you have this illness, there is a consequence. And the Scriptures say that the wages, the payment, the consequence of our sin is death. Physical death was a consequence of sin, as we know from Genesis chapter 1, 2, and 3. But spiritual death is also a consequence of our sin. A separation from God forever. So that a holy God must be separated. This was the problem that the Israelites came across in Exodus chapter 20. They are a sinful people and God is a holy God. How can those two mix? They can't. There can be no way that a holy God can commune with sinful people. Because you are a sinner, because you have this sickness of sin, God will not nor can He have personal fellowship with you. But also, because God is holy, your sin demands judgment. And God has decreed that this judgment is an eternity of separation from Him in a place called hell. place of fire, a place of burning, a place of torment. So every man, because he was born with this illness, is on the path to the eternal flames of that judgment. So now we have a real problem. We're sick. We're sick with sin. Our sickness has separated us from fellowship with God and has also placed us on the path to eternal judgment. And even worse, there's absolutely nothing you can do to cure yourself of that illness. Have you ever been in one of those situations? I, thank the Lord, have not been there yet with my daughters. By God's grace, I have never had a situation where my daughters have been very sick and I as a parent have done the best I could and looked on helplessly as I say, simply time and rest is going to have to solve this. But I know many of you parents have been there. That helpless feeling where your child is is ill, your child is sick, and there's nothing you can do for them. And you wish that you could take the sickness on yourself for them, but you can't. You might get sick, but it's not going to take it away from them when you get it. And it's a helpless feeling. And it's a terrible feeling. And that is our sin. We are helpless to cure ourselves or anyone else. Isaiah 64.6 tells us, We are all as an unclean thing. And all our righteousnesses are as filthy rags. The very best that we could do, 
the very best job we could do at masking the symptoms of our sin, at hiding the symptoms of our illness, is nothing more than a band-aid underneath a, gashing, a huge gash, a gaping wound. There's nothing that we can do to cure ourselves of the sickness. So we have a problem. We need a Savior. And that's bad news. But it really isn't bad news because we have a Savior. Because there is a cure. Romans chapter 6.23, I gave you the first half of that verse. Let's look at the second half of that verse together. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. 2,000 years ago, a man named Jesus Christ was born. A man that the angel Gabriel said would save his people from their sins. He came to be the cure for our illness. He came to stand between us and God. He came to be that one that when Israel said, Moses, never again let God speak to us. You You speak between us. Send someone else to stand between us and God. And God said they've rightly said that. They do need someone to stand between us and God. Jesus Christ came to be that one. To be the one that would stand between mankind and God. So how did He do it? Jesus lived a sinful life. The Bible tells us that Jesus was born of a virgin. No human father. That Jesus grew up having favor with both God and man. That Jesus lived 33 years upon this earth as God's beloved Son without sin, perfectly fulfilling the will of the Father so that God would look upon His Son and say, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. He lived a perfect life. He lived a sinless life. He lived a spotless life every moment of every day in complete obedience to the will of God the Father the end of those 33 years, the Scriptures tell us that Jesus Christ died. He didn't die of natural causes. He died a sinner's death. He died a death that He did not deserve. Three years after Jesus Christ's ministry began, wicked men had had enough of His teaching, had had enough of the manifest glory of God to man, had had enough of the truth of God's Word being shined into the darkness of their hearts, and so they killed Him. Now, Jesus was God. He could have refused to die, but He didn't refuse to die. And He didn't refuse to die because the Scriptures tell us that without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins. Every man, woman, and child deserves to die for their sin. You deserve to die for your sin. Right now, our society is big on what's fair, right? Everything has to be fair. Everyone gets their fair share, whatever that means. Thank God we're not going to get what's fair when it comes to our sin. Because if you got what was fair when it came to your sin, you would spend an eternity burning in the lake of fire. You would spend an eternity separated from God in the torments of hell. But thank God Jesus Christ died in your place. He was sinless, but He took upon Himself the wrath of man and the wrath of God. He bore God's wrath so that you would not have to. 
On that day, the Scriptures tell us He was the propitiation, the covering, the atonement for our sins, but not for ours only, but also the sins of the entire world. Every sin that you have ever committed, past, present, and future, was placed upon Jesus Christ on the cross of Calvary, and it was paid for by His precious blood. So much so was the sin of the world placed upon Him that the Scriptures tell us that when He was bearing our sin, God the Father turned His back to God the Son. The first time in the history of history that the Trinity has been out of fellowship. And Jesus Christ cried, My God, my God, why hast Thou forsaken Me? As He felt the anguish, not just of the scars and the wounds on His back, not just of the crown of thorns upon His head, not just of the nails in His hands and in His feet, but He felt the anguish of separation from God. Something that throughout all eternity had never happened. Why would Jesus do such a thing to cure your your sickness? To do for you what you could not do for yourself. To give a gift of eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Perhaps you've heard the illustration before, but imagine it with me. Imagine the world tomorrow wakes up to a deadly pandemic. There's an illness that is sweeping across the world. Millions upon millions are dying every day. Scientists are furiously trying to find out how they can cure this disease. And one scientist one day realizes that his son is immune to this disease. And so, this scientist, recognizing this, is elated. We take his blood, we can synthesize his blood, we can find a cure, and we can cure this pandemic. The only problem being, he's such a small boy. We'd need all of his blood. This young man would have to die if we are to cure this illness that is ravaging the world. He must choose either to save his son or allow his son to die so that the world can be saved. We know what choice he made, don't we? As we parallel this to God the Father who loved the world so much that he gave his only begotten son. You needed a cure. You needed a Savior. You have a cure. You have a Savior. Let's look finally about your accountability to this Savior. In Deuteronomy, as God promised, the prophet that was to come, He said in verse 19, And it shall come to pass that whosoever will not hearken unto My words which He shall speak in My name, I will require it of him. The person who doesn't accept the Word of God by the mouth of this prophet Jesus would face the consequences of that refusal. And we know from the Word of God that the consequences of that refusal is eternal judgment in hell. I take you back to that little boy. The father looks at the world around him and he sees all of the people that would be saved by this cure. But you know what also he he sees and he knows? He knows that 
if this cure were to come about, the world would go back to being the world. He knows that he wouldn't just be curing the next president and um, the, the next preacher. He'd be curing that murderer and that thief. And he knows that the world is going to move on and still be lost in its sin. What a tough choice that would be to sacrifice yourself for such a world. To sacrifice your son for such a world. The world was not worthy of his son's sacrifice. The world was not worthy of his son's death. So one day the boy comes up to his father and says, Father, if it's your will that I do this, I'll do it. Not my will, but your will be done. And the father looks at his son in pride and he says, This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And he allows his son to die on the cross. In our analogy, he allows his son to die for his blood so that the world might be saved. Romans chapter 5 verses 6 through 8 says this, For when we were yet without strength in due time Christ died for the righteous? No. For when we were yet without strength in due time Christ died for the good people? No. For when we were yet without strength in due time Christ died for the elect? No. For when we were yet without strength in due time, Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die. Yet peradventure for a good man, some would even dare to die. But God commendeth His love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. God shed His love into this world through His Son Jesus Christ to die on the cross, not for people who gladly accepted Him and say, God, thank You for the cure. He sent His Son to die on the cross for people who were killing His Son, who had openly rejected His Son. And as Christ hung up on the cross on that day, He said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. A world that was not interested in what God had to say. A world that didn't even realize they needed the cure. And when they realized they needed the cure, many of them didn't even want the cure. And God says, I'm going to send the cure through the death of my only begotten Son. You did not deserve the cure. You did not earn the cure. But the Father gave us the cure anyway when Jesus Christ died on the cross. The solution has been purchased. The cure has been made and freely given to all who will accept it. And that's the real trick, isn't it? Like any cure, you must accept that cure for yourself. I often give the analogy of the plane that is crashing. And you're on that plane and as it's barreling toward the earth, somebody looks at you and says, there's a solution to this problem. There's a parachute right there. If you say, no, I don't want the parachute, 
you're going to crash and burn. But you know, if you look at that parachute and you say, yes, that parachute can save me, and you stay in your seat, and you never appropriate that parachute, and you never put it on, you're still going to crash and burn. It's not enough for us to simply know there is a cure. We have to accept that cure. We have to appropriate that parachute. We have to put it on if we're going to be saved. The Scriptures tell us that Jesus Christ is God. That He was born of a virgin. That He lived a sinless life. That He died on the cross for our sins. That He bore our penalty. And that He rose again the third day in victory over death and hell. But you can have all of that stuff in your head. Just like you can have all of the benefits of putting that parachute on in your head and not receive the benefits. So what does it take to receive the cure for our sin? What does it take to be saved from our sin? John 3.16 tells us, For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. That's it. Belief. Belief on His name. Belief is not simply me believing Jesus can save me, but believing Jesus Christ has saved me and accepting that for myself. Belief on His name. The Scriptures continue to tell us, For God sent not His Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through Him might be saved. He that believeth on Him is not condemned, but he that believeth not is condemned already, because he hath not believed on the name of the only begotten Son of God. The cure is there. When you know that you're sick, when you see that there's a cure, You must accept that cure for yourself. Say, Pastor, how can I accept that cure? How can I accept Christ? Well, if you will, even this very moment, tell God that you believe Jesus is the Son of God. That you believe Jesus Christ died on the cross to save you from your sin. To tell God that you accept His free gift of salvation held out to you in love. The Scriptures tell us, and on the authority of Scriptures, I can tell you that you will be saved once for all because you have believed on the name of the only begotten Son of God. The Scriptures tell us, whosoever believeth not is condemned already. Belief to be saved. I speak finally to those who are believers in this room. You have the cure. You have been given the cure already. You are a born-again believer. Now, that doesn't mean you don't have a sin nature anymore. But you have been given victory over that sin nature. You have been freed from the penalty of sin and the power of sin. Have you taken for granted that gift? I began this message by telling you that the direction I wanted us to go this morning is that we would take the time and the effort not to take for granted our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. We're never going to lose Him. So we'll never get to the point where we've lost Him, therefore we've taken Him for granted. And so it's up to us 
to remember Him. That's what the Lord's Supper is about. The reason why we do the Lord's Supper on the first Sunday of every month is so that we will not forget or take for granted the tremendous sacrifice of Jesus Christ. But as we step into this Christmas week, let's be careful to do the same this week. To never take for granted the difference between you sitting in these seats who in just a few moments, I'm going to pray. And when I pray in just a few moments, you can pray too. And I will be talking directly to God. And if you pray, you will be talking directly to God. And there will be no veil between us because we have someone standing between God and our sin. The man Christ Jesus. We have a mediator. Israel longed for that mediator. For a thousand years, they longed for that mediator. And he hadn't come yet. He hadn't come. Any of those who longed for their Savior in those thousand years would love to change shoes with you. Who now have that mediator. Who now have the indwelling Holy Spirit who now can speak to God face to face. You don't have to go to a centralized location and bring a calf and watch Him slain on the altar in order to have a covering for your sins so that the high priest can then mediate between you and God. And He has to go into the veil between the the cherubims for you. And He gets to commune with God, but not you. You have access to the throne of God through Jesus Christ. What happened the day Jesus Christ came to be born? Why were the angels singing glory to God in the highest and on earth wrath? Judgment? Anger? That's not what they said. They said glory to God in the highest and on earth Peace, goodwill toward men. There's a day where Jesus Christ is coming in wrath and we are to be prepared for that day. But for those of us who have accepted Christ as our Savior, that's the peace. That's the goodwill. That's the reconciliation of God to men. That is the salvation from our sins that was promised the day Christ's birth was announced. Let's not take Him for granted. Let's take time today and tomorrow and on Christmas Eve and on Christmas Day individually as a family to thank God for this gift. To remember what this gift means to you. To remember how many generations of God's people throughout time have longed to see this gift come to pass. And to know that you've been given something special. Adam and Eve longed for this gift. Abraham longed for this gift. Isaac and Jacob longed for this gift. David longed for this gift. Solomon longed for this gift. Isaiah and Jeremiah longed for this gift. And the gift has been given 
and you have received it. What a privilege. What a blessing. Let's be sure that we don't take him for granted this week. Let's pray together.